What if in 2024, you got a little bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a full year. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses are helping me learn real-life conversation skills in Spanish. It's getting so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, or speak to merchants. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com SPP. That's right. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest, I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Chris Stemp here. Thanks so much for being here. Happy holiday-ish time of the year for many of you. For those that it doesn't apply, it's the end of the year, which is usually a good time as well. I also think it's a great time for reflection. And that's why I wanted to cover this topic. So on the show today, we are talking with Justin Zorn and Lee Martz. Yes, two people for the price of one, which is becoming the norm these days. And they are the authors of the new book called Golden, The Power of Silence in a World of Noise. And as you can glean from the title, what we're really talking about today is finding presence, finding your purpose, and doing it by doing a little less. By finding silence. Now, as you'll hear when we talk about silence, we're not really saying just go somewhere quiet, but figure out the ways in your life in which you can be most present. Now, this isn't just mindfulness. We're not saying just download an app and listen to meditations. It's actually, in my opinion, much more applicable. If you've ever said, oh, I've tried meditation and it just doesn't work, this is the episode for you. So Justin has served as both a policymaker and a meditation teacher in the U.S. Congress. He is a Harvard and Oxford trained specialist in the economics and psychology of well-being. He's written for a number of publications, and he's co-founder of Astrea Strategies, the consultancy that him and Lee work on together, where they help leaders and teams envision and communicate solutions to complex challenges. 
Lee is a consultant and leadership coach for major universities, corporations, federal agencies. She's led different initiatives, including a training program to promote experimental mindset among teams at NASA. She's worked with Harvard, Ikea, Google, Kaiser, and many more. And before I leave you, I'll just say this. This episode reminds me of why we do this. It's to add nuance back to the TikTok world where all nuance is gone. And so if you think conversations like this are important and valuable, tell a friend about the show, tell a family member, and we'll keep doing our best to bring out these conversations. Let's get into it. Here is my conversation with Justin Zorn and Lee Martz as we talk about their new book, Golden, The Power of Silence in a World of Noise. Enjoy. Right at the beginning of your book, you have in big, bold letters a phrase, and it says, silence isn't just the absence of noise. It's a presence that brings us energy, clarity, and deeper connection. What I'd love for you to do is first, in that vein, tell us what you mean by silence. And also, why do you think silence can bring us all of those things? I think I'd have to start as I get into the meaning of silence by just explaining how we didn't always believe that. We didn't always understand that it was a journey to get to that place. When we started writing this book back in 2017, or the journey started in 2017, when we were just feeling at a loss for what to do in our lives, how we could possibly make positive change in our world, in our communities, you know, be good family members, be good in our work because we just felt overwhelmed. And we both felt this intuition, like the starting point would be to get beyond the noise, but not just that, like tune into the silence, find spaces of pristine attention. So we wrote an article about this idea for Harvard Business Review. The article got some good traction and that set us on this whole journey of interviewing people about the meaning of silence which in turn brought us to this, this realization you just described. Lee, you want to say a little bit about that? Yeah, what we did is we decided to ask this question, what's the deepest silence you've ever known to all types of people, to neuroscientists and poets and politicians and people in the business sector, a whirling dervish, a man who's become a close friend, incarcerated on death row, Jarvis J. Masters. Um, all sorts of people really living lives um, vast, but who had a deep connection to silence. And we asked them, what's the deepest silence you've ever known? And they pointed us in the direction of things that were often not auditorily quiet, which again was where we started looking at the auditory noise, which is no doubt a problem. <laughs> and we'll get into mm -hmm. that in a second. But they pointed us beyond that to a place of, you know, to moments of internal quiet where maybe they were in a loud environment like running the perfect line through roaring rapids or at an all-night dance party at the 4 a.m mark or something like that but their internal soundscape was pristinely quiet or moments like births or death you know moments mm. of awe so it was really these interviews that started shaping us and developing our own understanding of silence and then really getting into that place of silence as a presence feeling again firsthand and this is what you know for your listeners who may be encountering this for the first time 
you know, we're, we're kind of jumping into the deep end here, but know that you'll, you'll, it really takes that time to really encounter silence. So answering a question like, what's the deepest silence you've ever known? And rather than thinking like, oh, that's not quiet, that's not high on a mountaintop with, you know, untrampled, you know, fresh fallen snow, really pay attention to what actually the answers that come when you ask yourself, what's the deepest silence you've ever known? That last point's really important. You said pay attention to the answer. What do you think is important about the answer to an individual? Yeah, you know, you asked this question before, Chris, like what does it mean that silence isn't just the absence of noise? It's this presence unto itself. So the answers for so many of the individuals were, as Lee mentioned, in these surprising places, you know, like that all-night dance party or running the perfect line through Roaring Rapids. She was talking about these people who found silence, not just as auditory silence, but as these places where nothing was making claims on the consciousness, these places where nothing was interfering with our true perception and intention. So it was through these individual answers to our question, what's the deepest silence you've ever known? that people were all describing these states of pristine attention, sometimes related to flow states, states where nothing, as I, I mentioned, nothing's making claims on the consciousness. And that's where we started to realize the common denominator to the answers to this question, what's the deepest silence you've ever known, is that the deepest silence, the most profound silence, was something that people would describe as not just an absence, but a presence. At this point, if I was listening, I'd go, this makes sense. But I might think, well, what else would there be to know? The reason I ask is, as I'm sure you've known, over the past 20 years, I think that message has been propagated to a degree, but you all take it a little different angle. What do you believe that other angle is? I think one thing that we really came to understand in this process is that we actually started by talking to a whole lot of meditators and we ourselves are, we call our, we confess lapsed meditators at this point, but we both have had really deep um, practices in the past and we're super grateful for that time and have the deepest respect for it. But what we would want, I mean, what we came to understand is that a very popular, thank goodness, route to finding quiet for some a very well-known route is meditation, but that is not everybody's route, like profoundly not. And that does not mean you don't get to find silence. There's mm. actually infinite doors to the temple of silence, if you will. And beating ourselves up as our friends were doing, and even we were doing at different times for not meditating, is, is not actually going to do us any good. So we spoke with a professor of biobehavioral health and medicine, um, Joshua Smythe at Penn State, who gave us a definition for internal silence. And he said, silence is what people think silence is, or actually he said, quiet is what people think quiet is. And what we would add to that is it's what one actually authentically in our senses experiences quiet. That's the quiet we're interested in. So maybe that's, you know, skiing down a mountain slope. Maybe that's in, on the dance floor. Maybe that's in deep reading. Maybe that's in doodling. Maybe that's in really encountering nature or playing with our children and not being distracted by other things. Whatever the way, that's the way we want you to like really explore and make time for and value. So I think the radical notion 
it's not that this is, this is, you know, oh, silence, like we didn't, you know, this isn't that life hack. This isn't like new news. This is old news. This is old human intelligence. This is innate wisdom. The layer here is that it doesn't need to look one way. It can look infinite ways. And we really want to encourage your listeners and our readers to find that and to value it and to carve out that time. This episode is brought to you by Hymns. We don't want to admit it, but 52% of men over 40 experience some form of erectile dysfunction. But like many health problems, no one wants to talk about or take up hours of your day to deal with it. That's why you need to check out Hims. Hims is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you can get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Hims offers an array of high-quality options, including pills or chews for ED, and serums, sprays, or oral options for hair loss. If prescribed, your medication ships directly to you, for free and in discreet packaging. No waiting rooms and no pharmacy visits. No insurance is needed. Pay one low price for your treatments, online visits, ongoing shipments, and provider messaging. You can even manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com smart. That's H-I-M-S dot smart for your personalized treatment options. One last time, hymns.com smart. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash twist for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscriptions plan. This episode is brought to you by Rocket Money. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes. But let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps you lower your bills. I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, I can cancel it with a tap. I never have to get on the phone with customer service. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members on average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com smart. One more time, that's rocketmoney.com smart. I get so frustrated in today's world with the prescribing obvious solutions and claiming that they lead to quick and and large results, right? So whether that be start an Amazon store and get rich in three years, or whether that be go keto and be the most healthy and like everything is missing nuance today. It's one of the things I like about the medium of podcasting and what we try to do is to provide back that nuance. And that's what you all do, which is we know about mindfulness. We know about meditation. We know things are getting crazy. But oftentimes that's where it ends. People are like, well, just get a Headspace app and you'll be good. And what you're saying is 
No, you can know that this is the goal and know there's benefits to that, but you have to do the work to figure out the way you can get there and what's going to work for you. And that's a different message, in my opinion. Chris, I love that. I mean, and you're, you're bringing me back to why we felt the intuition that led us to writing this book, which was just this feeling like, all right, it's like there's nothing new under the sun. Like so much is being produced every year in terms of new content, new business ideas, new memes, new hot takes. And we're still living in this kind of mode where it's like, oh, there's going to be a new big idea that's going to save us and make us happy, make us solve climate change, make us solve inequality, make us solve whatever the issue might be. And it's like, for us, we just started feeling like this, this sense that more sound and stimulus, more data, more hot takes wasn't actually going to solve the problem. Like the answers might lie somewhere else in the open space between the thoughts, in the open space beyond all the mental stuff, the place where we can really access intuition, where really good ideas come from. So that's that's what we started studying in this book is how do we understand like where really good generative ideas come from beyond thought, beyond noise? Again, Justin, really incredible insight because I am judged in many areas of my life on my output. It's very easy, and I do it, to just say that's what is valued. Okay, that's my value as a human. So the more of it I can do, the, the more valuable. What would you say to this idea that we have created a world in which we're valued for what we do, not who we are? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we would say we've swung way too far in that producing, you know, um, creating noise kind of way. And, and, and often we just want to say like, it comes from a good place. Oftentimes, like the desire to contribute, the desire to give to your family, to do good work. And we were struggling with this ourselves, as we mentioned, you know, these issues that feel very, and are very urgent. That's where we were scrambling to remove toxic chemicals, to address climate change. And so the push is to create more content and fill the space and did it, but that was not coming, you know, we were not coming to the solutions, the type of novel thinking that's needed to really crack these issues. So we turn to an ancient Japanese principle in Japanese culture of ma, M-A, you know, and transliterated. It's a kanji character that we can picture the doors of a temple gate with slats through and golden sunlight pouring through those slats. And it's a principle that sometimes, um, translated to mean silence or emptiness or nothingness, but our favorite translation is pure potentiality. So it's throughout the culture in the arts, for example, the scroll paintings where the calligraphy, the swish of the of the paintbrush is balanced with the empty space around it. And that empty space is just as important as that stroke of the paintbrush. An ikibana flower arrangement, the, the twigs and petals and flowers are displayed, but the empty space around it is also taken in as a, as a wholeness. So that there's this in architecture, there's this principle in conversation, there's more pause. Even to when I talk to my Japanese colleagues and ask them how they are, there's a pause to actually check in to see how they are. <laughs> You know, Mm -hmm. there's a moment so that pure potentiality is what we're missing out on when we completely jam pack 
everything with content. We mm. do it in our work days. We do it with back-to-back -back meetings. We go from one Zoom to another, whatever the case may be. We do it even when we try to retreat. We go on retreats and workshops where we pack it with, with content, no downtime. And, you know, everybody... Everybody loves the coffee breaks most of all, <laughs> mm -hmm. but we're like squeezing out the coffee breaks. We do it in our brainstorming. And what we get when we do that is a tyranny of the fastest and loudest. And what we get when we favor that kind of contribution is only certain voices get into the mix. And we also default to conventional thinking. We're not doing innovative thinking in that space. So we want to bring in that ma, that pure potentiality to, to all these aspects of our lives, to our home lives. When can, you know, how can we share time, quiet time together? Just be reflective, enjoy this beautiful meal we just had, for example, mm -hmm. together, or that the children are playing on the floor as they are in Justin's home right now. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, how can we take that in? How can we, you know, even a good, say, work session, can we just pause and reflect upon what this group has done together for a moment before launching into the next thing? There's no time for preparation, no time for reflection, no time for integration. And that's really what's, it's, it's a problem. Yeah. I have to ask you then, Lee, what do you think the value is of having leaders and organizations bring more of this idea of mob, this idea of silence into their decision-making and problem solving. I think it's critical and the more complex and urgent, the more critical it is. So we use um, a principle we bring in is slow down. There isn't much time. We have a section in the book called that because if it's really important, you best slow down, create some space around it because otherwise we just get reactive. And again, we kind of default to conventional thinking, we default to that the one that is loudest and fastest. And we don't want to do that if we're really serious about taking on these problems and being strategic and actually including marginalized thinking and, and voices that don't get, you know, that don't elbow their way up to the center, then we're missing out on a lot of what I would call intelligence if we're mm. always just defaulting to that loudness. Yeah. And one of the things we've now touched on multiple times is this idea of leveraging silence to solve problems. And early on in the book, there's a statement, which I believe is like your thesis. The most intractable problems won't be solved with more thinking or talking. If I heard just that or read just that, I would be like, what the hell are we talking about? How are we going to solve anything without thinking or without talking? So I'd love to ask you, what do you mean by that statement? Yeah, we wanted it to be deliberately a little bit provocative, I'd say, Chris. And I think to answer that, there's a few different approaches we could take. We could look at all the neuroscience research that we did and the, the leading scientists and, and physicians that we spoke with on this, on this topic. But I would go all the way back to 2,500 years ago, where Pythagoras, the ancient Greek philosopher, who was also a, a mathematician, a geographer, a leader of a kind of school of thinking about science and technology and philosophy, he required his inner circle of students to spend five years not talking. And this is someone who came up with scientific innovations that are still, still appear in middle school math textbooks, like the Pythagorean theorem for finding the long side of a right triangle. Mm -hmm. And it's like, at this phase in human history, we're not coming up with 
scientific and technical technological innovations of the magnitude that Pythagoras created. Like we don't really have a kind of multidisciplinary generative school of thought like the one that he had in ancient Greece. And why is that? I mean, maybe because technology is a lot more advanced and there's not as much low-hanging fruit to discover in the same way, some people might argue. But what we explore in the book is that he was so committed to helping his students, and in his own case, working in his own consciousness, to shift the architecture of the mind away from the constant search for entertainment and novelty toward a deeper pursuit of more fundamental truth. So it's like, why did he require his inner circle of students to spend five years in silence? Because he wanted them to be tuned to understanding nature in a deep way, to understanding ethics in a deep way. And it was through that that he was able to find solutions and find discoveries on a scale that we can't really comprehend today. You know, as you were telling that story, I'm going, makes sense, but... I, if I spend five years silent and come up with the Pythagorean theorem, I'm still likely going to be kind of poor, right? Because I didn't work for five years. But my thinking changed there towards the end when you said, why don't we come up with similar revelations, you know, accomplishments today? And that I would agree with. I continually get frustrated with the short-termism and the uh, incremental gains on things that honestly, do they really matter? like coming out with a new iPhone version every year with like another camera. I, I, I'm consistently amazed with our, as a species, inability to say like 90% of the stuff we're doing doesn't matter. Chris, I should also clarify that we're not recommending that anyone spend exactly. five years in silence. I exactly. should have <laughs> prefaced no, no. by saving with that because I mean, we're, I mean, we're living lives in the thick of the noise right now. I think I mentioned before when we were talking, I've got two-year-old twins and a six-year-old at home and still very engaged in politics. And, and Lee is a teenager and very engaged in business and issues like taking toxic chemicals out of supply chains. And, and this is our work. This is our lives. So we don't, we didn't write this book to encourage anyone to run off to a monastery. Like what we're interested in is how do we take the underlying logic of how Pythagoras and his inner circle of students were able to innovate that way? How yep. do we take that underlying logic and knowing the conditions we're living in, replicate some of that? You yep. know, maybe just find, even if it's tiny pockets of silence in our day, how can we imbue our lives with a little bit of this spaciousness that's necessary for tapping into, tuning into intuition. A couple of things before we get into the, the how-to that I still want to cover. One is, it seems like this could be a partial anecdote to the hustle culture that's promoted everywhere today. Do you think that that hustle culture is... Uh, partly to blame for a lot of the maladies of modern civilization? And do you think this can help with that? Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. We do think uh, this hustle culture, this grind culture, as the Nat Minister calls it. Um, yeah, we, in fact, thanks to Justin's work on um, economics, we look at, at the powerhouse for a lot of this noise, which is our 
uh, indicator for for um, our success, gross domestic product. It's basically um, those numbers are highest when we're producing noise. So we don't, for example, honor a pristine rainforest or pristine forest standing. We it counts towards GDP when it's cut up and sold at Home Depot. And the same is true of our attention. Our attention, our pristine attention, say for a beautiful piece of art we're taking in or time with our loved ones or even just time with ourselves is priced at zero. But mm. if it's uh, if our attention is grabbed and we're you know clicking links and eyeballs on a page, then it's valuable to our GDP. And that is still our headline indicator for progress and success right now. So um, Justin takes us into some alternatives there for that. And maybe I just just take a second to talk about the framework of noise that we're hitting upon. So it is this auditory noise that's part mm -hmm. of the hustle, right? Just the buzzing of machinery, right? The And that is certainly on the rise. It is louder than it's ever been in our world. We use the proxy indicator of emergency sirens, which are now six times louder than they were just a hundred years ago. And those sirens need to get our attention. Well, the only way to do that is just go louder, 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 louder. So our auditory world is louder. Europe does a much better job measuring decibel levels around them. And so they estimate that 450 million people, about 65% of the population lives at auditory levels that are deemed harmful to their health by the World Health Organization. Wow. You know, who knows what our situation is, we don't do as good a job measuring it, but any city dweller will tell you it's louder than ever. But yeah. we can't just stop there. Looking at informational noise, the mass proliferation of information that's available at our fingertips or through our screens is extraordinary. So in 2010, the CEO or then CEO of Google, Eric Schmidt, estimated that every two days, we now create as much information as we did from the dawn of civilization to 2003. So to your point about sort of like all that stuff we're creating, like we're not, it's not precious, awesome. You know, it's just, it's just a mass proliferation of information. And there is the sense that more information is better, but at a certain point, obviously it has diminishing returns. Information feeds off our attention or it's our attention that's required to take in information. And our ability to process information has not increased but right. the demands on our attention have increased. So that's another yet another problem. We're taking in about five times more information as the previous generation in the United States. Um, so there's a lot more coming at us. And then we look at our internal soundscape, the noise and the quiet from inside. So Ethan Cross, a professor at University of Michigan estimates that we listen to something like 320 State of the Union addresses every day of compressed speech. That's internal chatter, rumination, fixation, anxiety, depression. That is also on the rise. It's more of an area of discovery right now. So we're looking at the auditory, informational, internal levels of noise that is in that interplay that feed those feedback loops and how it's impacting our lives. So without a doubt, it is louder. It's not just you. And it's not just that you're not doing it right. It's also a whole system that's designed to make noise. Where I get stuck is, Lee, you were just talking about the amount of information created. All of this content being created, why are people doing that? And I have this sense that it's a mix between a want to 
be human, learn, create, grow, share, fine. And the other side, which is monetary, it's simple capitalism. So the reason I mentioned that is because what can the average person do if the, the system we're in, if the game we play is based around this, this idea of creation, then do we lose as individuals if we don't play the game? Or are we just losing as, as a society by playing the game, getting really good at it and realizing it's the wrong game? Big questions, Chris. And these are big questions. So in the book, we look at these questions from multiple levels. We look at what it means for an individual to be able to notice noise and appreciate silence, to tune into silence in the day-to-day. We look at what an individual can do to, to do this tuning in, in bigger ways, you know, once a year, once in a lifetime, how to find what we call rapturous silence, the most pristine attention possible. But then we also look at what families and friends groups and especially workplaces and organizational cultures can do to honor quiet time and honor pristine attention. So we look at a set of strategies for that. But then, you know, Chris, as you mentioned, the structures, we look at what it would mean to build a society that honors silence. What would it mean not just to reshape our cultures, but actually create new public policies that would that would signify a shift in our culture, like Lee was talking about the economics and GDP, of appreciating what's unspoken, of appreciating quiet attention, and not just, you know, what turns into content. So we can get into some of those practices, uh, you know, in those different areas. But I also just want to preface this by saying, we're not blaming individuals for creating the problem. You know, it's like, don't hate the player, hate the game. You know, <laughs> yeah. it's like, this is the game we're living in. And, you know, again, we're not even blaming, you know, the, the processes that, that created these structures in the first place, because it's understandable, you know, that we would view sound and speech and content as valuable. Just what we're, what we're claiming in this book, the argument we were, we're really fundamentally making in this book, back to what you mentioned before, that the you know, the, the challenges facing humanity might not be solved with more thinking and talking. What we're looking to achieve in this book is more balance, mm-hmm. more balance between sound and stimulus and data and content and the space and silence through which true intuition arises, through which mm. meaning arises. Like Lee was talking about this idea of ma appreciating the spaces in between, because that's where the good ideas might come from. I think most people listening would say, this makes sense. I want to do it. In fact, I've, I've heard this and I've tried to do it, right? Meditation, whatever it is. It's really hard though. What is it about finding silence that is so difficult? We actually put a chapter to that, why silence is scary, um, because it's an important question. Um, and this is sort of a, a, a funny both and. So first we address like that silence is scary for many of us. And that can be because we're maybe facing ourselves or maybe facing something difficult about life. It's it's that which maybe where fear might come up or become known as well as the unknown. So there's a lot to that. That is not a 
new phenomenon that's been going on forever. Nietzsche spoke about the horror of the vacuum, you know, so we have, we've struggled with these things for a long time. So what's beautiful is um, so many spiritual and religious uh, traditions actually still build build a, you know, we can build a capacity, a, look, a little bit more comfort, and we can take little micro moments instead of maybe jumping into a seven-day silent meditation retreat. Right. The other side of this is actually we did touch on is that, you know, maybe a way in is just to not make it about that, like, okay, you have to like go off into a cave and do, you know, whatever in dark, total darkness and silence, but really, again, finding that silence that is your quiet, your pleasure. For example, for me, that is, I just taught dance this morning. It's teaching a dance class. It's delivering all this choreography on the spot, basically using all my attentional focus in that moment, in that one hour with, with the students there. I don't have any space or time left for self-referential thought. I can't be like occupying all these thoughts of me, the story I tell myself about myself. All that falls away. Mm-hmm. So that egoic self is quiet. And yet I'm more connected than ever to the humans around me, to just the joy of dance, to the sense of aliveness. So I'm both smaller and bigger in that moment. And those kinds of self-transcendent experiences, which is sort of an umbrella term for those moments of awe, those flow states, mystical experiences, um, experiences that can be brought about through meditation, through expanded states of consciousness, through psychedelics and entheogens, things like this. Those kinds of experiences have a shared, uh, you know, neurological quality and a felt mm. experience for us. So, so, so this is a little bit like, yeah, it could be scary, and maybe there's a different route for you that's way a little bit less scary <laughs> and it can also be scary in relationships and so some of that like even bringing up the op- the 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 um thought of like let, let's go on a hike and spend some portion of it in silence this is something Justin and I did in our planning we would go for an hour long hike and spend about 20 minutes in silence we just sort of made a made a uh design and then did it and it was awesome you know and it's mm. it's like it's it builds connection. And then the ideas and all the, you know, just the, for this book or this very book, we did a lot of that planning. So sometimes it's normalizing and creating some opportunities to do that with friends and loved ones and coworkers. And what we have found is that there's a real hunger for this. So it's just about kind of starting those conversations, doing a little designing, and that's, that can be a little awkward at first, but there's such a desire that it's usually met with a big yes. Yeah. I can imagine. How would you advise, you just went over a number of ways we can find it. How would you advise people to start the journey of finding silence in the way that works best for them? I would say, you know, just starting with an appreciation of silence. You know, we talk in the book about noticing noise, seeing where you could tune into silence, you know, starting one by paying attention to all the forms of noise in your life the auditory noise, the informational noise, the internal noise, as Lee mentioned before, you know, the noise in our ears, the noise in our screens, and the noise in our heads. Study how that's appearing in your life. And then notice the small pockets of peace that are there amidst all that noise. You know, seek these spaces and savor them and see how deeply you can go into these little pockets of silence even if they only appear in your life for a moment, like your kids are happily entertained with a toy, or you get a chance to step out of the office and just listen to the sound of the breezes and the branches or feel the light of the sun. 
find ways to connect to the silence by just simply listening. You don't need a fancy meditation practice or bells or cushions, and you don't need a whole lot of time. See if you can just make it about the quality of the silence, not necessarily the quantity. Yeah, we also like to encourage deeper moments. So what Justin's describing is uh, what we call the healthy successor to the smoke break. These are like little <laughs> bite size, you know, moments of quiet, because we used to get it on our smoke breaks, those <laughs> of us like myself who smoked rather happily for a while. <laughs> Why? Because I got this beautiful moment to take, you know, big in breath and a big exhale and be outside and have just a nice connecting time with other people. But I'm glad I quit but yeah. I also lost my silence in those right. moments. So, right. so there's, those are the healthy successors of the smoke break, but going in deeper, one of the um, interviewees we spoke with Gordon Hempton is a wonderful acoustic ecologist. So he goes all around the world recording the quietest places on earth to um, document those places. So he's just an inc incredible human. And one of the, his little, um, practices or is kind of a bigger practice is that he has his to-do lists. And when it gets too long, he has a set like 13 pages, he'll print it out, fold it up, put it in his pocket, get out as far as he can into the wilderness, you know, spend some time letting the silence and the sounds, you know, these are sounds, right? Not noises from the natural environment. So it kind of settle into that environment. And then he'll take out his to-do list and take a look at it from this place, from this place away from his, you know, computer, away from his desk. And suddenly all kinds of things can be marked off that to-do list, he says. Mm. And the last time we talked to him right after he had done this and he had taken five months of work, that stuff, that extra stuff you were hitting upon, Chris, like all that stuff, the, the hustle, the busy, the whatever that felt important at his desk did not seem important when he was out in nature. Mm -hmm. And then he, you know, folds it back up and hikes back out. So that's take your to-do list for a hike. So we do like mm -hmm. to encourage some of those practices that are more immersive. Again, it doesn't have to be meditation. It cannot be other things. It can also just be like just taking a day to not speak or to not speak so much or to not speak for a certain amount of time. You let the people around you know you're going to take a wordless Wednesday. And when we're not in that place of generating the reactions, the responses to everything, there's a certain quietening that can happen in, in, in our minds. And it's a welcome one for many of us who, who you know, feel exhausted by that constant engagement. So I had last week off, it was Thanksgiving and uh, Monday, Tuesday I had off, but uh, my wife was working. My kids were at school. I was home. I was healthy, which is all those things happening. It's just not happened in like forever. And, uh, and it was amazing. I mean, it was amazing. But at the end of it, I realized I spent those two days doing things I enjoy, having a lot of fun, but all of them were tasks. When I found that I didn't know what to do next. I would go, well, what do I want to accomplish? Everything from changing the doorknobs to working on the lawn, to painting a fence, to changing light bulbs. I mean, literally. And I had this realization of like, th that'll never stop. What am I doing? And that's actually scary because then I started to ask, well, if I just don't do anything, what is the point? And I could not come up with an answer. Lee mentioned there's this chapter of the book, Why Silence is Scary. 
And I think one of the simplest and best explanations for why silence is scary is because there's just a lot to do to survive as a human being. Like it's scary, not just because of like FOMO, but it's scary because there's actually a lot that we need to do as human beings. So I think it's like ultimately comes down to figuring out how we could find that space to have intention again. Lee, what would you add to that? Yeah, I think it does. It's like a muscle we need to kind of, um, we need to build. Um, mm. What's that downtime look like? It could take a little bit of practice for those. those of, you're in the thick of it and we get it. We're in the thick of it too. <laughs> and so that doing also, you're there's a lot of, you know, it's just a huge contribution um, that you're making. And then that being how to, how to be still, if that's what, you know, you don't even have to be still, but how to be still, how to not be in that production mode, how to just maybe just take a hike or just read a book or just have a nap. Like Mm. it it might be a muscle that you need to develop. We highly encourage you to do it. Would you say that it's not as much about forcing silence or even the act of silence alone, it's that by making that part of your life or integrating a practice that leads to silence, you can be more intentional, which is actually the goal, which is like, you're not saying here's what you should do with your life. You're saying, make sure you're doing it on purpose. And silence is a way to find that. Yeah. For us, as we got more and more into silence we and, and the different routes that we would find in silence, what we noticed is this is a space that allows us to discern really the noise from the signal. Mm. And that's so important because there is so much coming at us right now that to discern what is really truly needing my attention in my job, with my family, with myself, with my health, all the things, all the things, what is truly needing my attention? What's the true signal versus what is just noise? What is just business? What's the, what's what busyness? You know, what's the next hack, the next, this, all that mm-hmm. stuff you're talking about the stronger, faster, this or that, or everything that our culture is pushing towards. We need a little quiet to sort mm-hmm. that out. And it's of the utmost importance that we do because this is our lives, right? Right. Where we put our attention is is what our day is made up of, was what our weeks and months and years, and suddenly, you know, that's that time starts slipping away. So it really feels like a matter of freedom and a matter of the utmost importance, because this really ties to our purpose for being here, what we're right. here to do. Right. That's fantastic. Well. Lee and Justin, thank you so much for kind of sharing this with us. Again, the name of the book is Golden, The Power of Silence in a World of Noise. Lee, tell us, um, you know, where else can we find you? What's on the horizon? Uh, Anything like that, that our our listeners can learn more. Sure. We can be found at Astrea Strategies. That's A-S-T-R-E-A strategies.com. That's our consultancy where we bring contemplation and communications together. Um, so that's one place you can find us. There's, uh, also the book can be found really anywhere you can find books, Amazon bookshop.org. And I just want to give a shout out to those who love audible books Mm -hmm. that our reader Prentice Oniemi is phenomenal. And he really Mm. just, he just brings so much life with his buttery, awesome, smooth, quiet voice. He just brings so much to the book itself that we just love to mention it in particular. So we hope you'll check out the book and uh, find us at astrayastrategies.com. And we're also on LinkedIn. 
And you were uh, Audible featured you because of how great not only the book is, but the Audible component, right? I think so. I mean, that I, I give it all to Prentice. Yeah, we were like number two in business and number one in spirituality and religion. And we were so happy to be, you know, ranking in both of those categories. Right. That's really what we're here to do is to connect the dots between those two. That's amazing. Well, Lee, thank you again for uh, for being here. Thanks for having us on, Chris. This week's guests were Justin Zorn and Lee Mars. It was hosted by Chris Stemp and produced by yours truly, John Rojas. The book, The Power of Silence in a World of Noise, can be found wherever books are sold. Let's jump into the quick housekeeping items. If you'd ever like to reach out to the show, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. And of course, if you want to stay up to date with all things Smart People Podcast, head over to the website smartpeoplepodcast.com and sign up for the newsletter. All right, that's it for us this week. Make sure you stay tuned because we've got a lot of great interviews coming up and we'll see you all next episode.